we are in the book of Acts, and uh, we're continuing through that. Uh, if you need a Bible, you can grab one on the resource table. I also printed off a sermon handout with extra blanks this week. So, no, nah, I didn't skimp and just do like three blanks. There's like ten blanks on there. So, right, Rachel's going to get it. Is she the only one? I don't know. Certainly there are some blank filler outers out there somewhere. So feel free to grab one of those. It'll have the stuff that you see up on the screen as well. We're going to be in Acts chapter 13, verses 4 through 12 today. And uh, last week, the Spirit sent uh, Barnabas and Saul, as he was being referred to at that point, Saul, who would later be referred to as Paul. We'll see that in today's passage. But last week, the Spirit sent out these two missionaries, these two church leaders, on their first official missionary journey that was commissioned by the church in Antioch. And this week, we're going to look at the first leg of that journey. We're going to break that journey up into several pieces, as we will do with Paul's later missionary journeys as well. But we're going to look at the first leg of that journey today. And this is where Paul takes center stage in bringing the gospel to the ends of the earth and fulfilling his mission as the apostle to the Gentiles. We see that beginning today. Uh, Today's passage sets the tone for the rest of Paul's missionary journeys. And just so you know, the book of Acts is laid out, uh, at least after starting in in chapter 13, really the bulk of the rest of the book of Acts is all going to be the three missionary journeys of Paul and then his uh, travels to Rome, where we'll end the book of Acts with Paul in Rome. So we're going to look at his missionary journeys a lot, but I want to point out that this early part of the first missionary journey is really going to set the tone for later Uh, experiences that Paul has on the road. And one of the main themes that's going to get repeated over and over and over again throughout the book of Acts and throughout the rest of the New Testament is the reality of spiritual opposition to gospel ministry. It's that that's a real deal thing, spiritual opposition to gospel ministry. Um, In in, uh, not 19, in 1856. Now, a lot of you guys have heard a a certain quote. I won't endorse the movie up here, but... uh, This will ring a bell to you if you've seen it. It's a movie back in the 90s. But that quote from this movie comes from like way, way long ago, the middle of the 19th century, a couple different places. But in 1856, there was a Philadelphia pastor by the name of William Ramsey, and he wrote a book, and they had long titles back then with lots of commas, but his book was called Spiritualism, which was the idea of like uh, not being Christian per se, but just being spiritual and kind of a pluralism where you bring in a lot of spiritualities. And uh, it's called Spiritualism, a Satanic Delusion and a Sign of the Times. And in that book, William Ramsey writes about our great spiritual enemy. He writes this. He says, one of the most striking proofs of the personal existence of Satan, which our times affords us, is found in the fact that he has so influenced the minds of multitudes in reference to his existence and doings as to make them believe that he does not exist and that the hosts of demons or evil spirits over whom Satan presides as prince, which he's called that numerous times in the Gospels, are only the fantasies of the brain, some hallucination of mind. Could we have a stronger proof of the existence of a mind so mighty as to produce such results. And of course, the later quote is, the greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world that he did not exist, right? And you know, others have written about Satan's deceptive nature. Certainly we see that in scripture. That's how God's word presents Satan or the devil as uh, deceptive in nature. 
And folks that write about this are correct to point out that the prince of this world, which is another name for Satan, we see that at least three times in the Gospel of John, Satan's called the prince of this world. He's the one offering the kingdoms of this world to Jesus in Christ's temptation in the wilderness. So does he have some sense, some level of authority in this earth, on this earth, in this period of time? Yes, that is true. Um, But we know that Christ is coming back. And Christ is going to establish his kingdom. But in the meantime, Satan is operative. And a lot of the times he does his best work while nobody is paying any attention to him because we think it's just a hallucination of the mind or a fantasy, as that author pointed out. Uh, But sometimes, and I, I would say a lot of the times, we get to see his fingerprints on the opponents of gospel ministry. Even if we don't see Satan himself showing up, you know, with the cape and the horns and the red, you know, all this stuff, right? We see his fingerprints all over opposition to gospel ministry all over the world, and we have for the last 20 centuries, to be honest. Uh, The name Satan derives from a word that means literally adversary or opponent. And so Satan is the great enemy of God and of all of those who belong to God. And so any opposition to the gospel of Christ, that Jesus Christ came and died for our sins and rose again, and is thus providing us with forgiveness and eternal life if we will only trust in him, that our judgment has been poured out on him and we have been given his righteousness, that gospel message, that good news, he is the great opponent of that gospel message. And so any opposition to the gospel or gospel ministry can rightly be called satanic, even if he's only involved indirectly. And I'm not a guy that sees a devil behind every bush or a demon behind every bush, as was so famously said, but I do see Satan as operative in this world. In fact, when I became a Christian, I was reading C.S. Lewis's uh, The Screwtape Letters, and I wasn't a Christian yet, but I realized, like, this is all happening in my life. It's like he pulled back the curtain on temptation and and, uh, these um, personalities, I guess you'd call them, that are tempting us and causing temptation for God's people and trying to steal God's glory, okay? So in today's passage, we're going to see Satan lurking in the shadows but, but Paul is going to shine a light on this, this devil and his diabolical schemes as he confronts one of his pawns. Whether this pawn knew he was a pawn or not, Paul's going to shine a light on Satan by confronting him. And all too often, we either don't think about spiritual opposition at all. It's kind of like that quote. We just think, oh, demons, angels, none of that's real. Or we're, we're okay with angels, not fallen angels though, right? Uh, So we either just put it out of our mind completely or we think about it too much and we become obsessed and we give our spiritual opponents way too much credit who are in fact limited creatures under the sovereign hand of God. So on the one hand, we become vulnerable to deception and to spiritual attack because we just put it out of our minds and act like there's no spiritual opposition. On the other hand, we become petrified by the seemingly overwhelming odds when facing spiritual opposition. Do you see the difference there? On the one hand, we don't think about it at all, and we're like walking around on a battlefield not realizing we're in spiritual war, and obviously that makes us vulnerable. On the other hand, we're petrified. We're, we're thinking all the time. We're giving Satan and his, and his minions too much credit, okay? So the big idea for today is that, folks, gospel ministry, that is ministry, that is going out and sharing the gospel with people, bringing the hope of Christ to a hopeless world, Gospel ministry will face spiritual opposition, but through Christ, we can overcome any and all spiritual opposition. That's our big idea today. So today's passage models an approach to spiritual opposition 
that holds to both on one hand the reality of our spiritual opponents. Guys, we're going to take God's word at face value and believe that uh, we really have spiritual opponents, that Satan and demons are real just as angels are. So on the one hand, our passage is going to model holding on to that reality, while at the same time holding on to the reality of the unlimited power and ultimate authority of Jesus Christ our Lord. And that's what our passage in the life of Paul and his missionary journeys is going to model for us. We're going to look specifically at three aspects of gospel ministry in today's passage. We're going to look at intentional gospel outreach. We're going to look at inevitable opposition that crops up as a result of that. And then we're going to see how Christ overcomes it. So that's what we're going to look at today. So first, gospel ministry means intentional outreach with God's people. We get to do it together, folks. We get to do this great commission as a body. Uh, So gospel ministry means intentional outreach. And when I looked up the definition of outreach on Google Docs as I was preparing my sermon, I just right-clicked and pulled up the definition. And on Google Docs, it gave a simple little definition, and then the example phrase it gave was, was literally, let me see if I wrote it down word for word. This is the example phrase. It said, the loving outreach of God to the world. I love that. On Google Docs, that was the definition. Uh, in verses 4 and 5 of our passage, we're going to see God's loving outreach as the Holy Spirit sends and also supports Barnabas and Saul, his representatives, his heralds. So let me read that. Acts chapter 13, starting in verse 4. It says, So, being sent out by the Holy Spirit, and we know, commissioned, laid hands on, prayed for by the church at Antioch, but being sent out ultimately by the Holy Spirit, they, that is Barnabas and Saul, went down to Seleucia, that's the port for Antioch, about 16 miles down the way, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. Uh, When they reached Salamis, they began to proclaim the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews, and they also had John as their helper. Now, a huge Jewish population in Salamis on the northeastern coast of Cyprus. And I've got a map, actually. I think, do we don't have a map? Okay, never mind. I don't have a map. Uh, But basically, 60 miles uh, from the coastline of Antioch of Seleucia, You get to this, like, I think it's a 140-mile-wide island called Cyprus. It's the third largest island in the Mediterranean. And from ancient times, it had uh, a Jewish population there in Salamis. And then um, we're going to get to the other city I'll talk about in a second. But you remember John Mark. John Mark's mom was the rich woman that owned the house where Peter went when he got out of prison. And remember, Rose, the servant, was like, hey, Peter's here, and she forgot to let him in. That's John Mark's house. So John Mark now goes, I believe he's Barnabas' nephew or cousin, he goes with them on this journey, and it says they also had John as their helper, okay? So in verse 4, we see that the missionaries are sent by God's Spirit. I hope that's clear. hope that was clear from last week, too. In verse 5, we see that the missionaries are sent with God's people. Now, sometimes do you get Philip, you know, getting sort of mysteriously brought out to the middle of the desert to talk to an Ethiopian eunuch by himself? Yeah, that happens sometimes. But guys, by and large, we're sent out in twos, at least. We're sent out as a group to support one another because we are going to face opposition, right? So we see the missionaries sent out with God's people. Barnabas and Saul, if you remember from last week, they were the ones called by the Spirit. Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul. But they also brought along this younger, younger guy, John Mark, uh, to assist them with gospel ministry. Whether that meant, you know, paying the bill at the restaurant or carrying the luggage or, or baptizing. Hey, we got it. Yes, 
I love this. So y'all can see uh, Greece and Asia Minor and the Middle East and Africa. So Cyprus is right in the middle of all that. So there was empire after empire after empire took over Cyprus. And of course, the Romans have it at this point with Saul and Barnabas, but tons of spiritual influences. It's a very spiritual, spiritually pluralistic place with a lot of influences from the East and from Europe and from Africa and all these different places, okay? And they have, uh, from ancient times, because it's right, across, right uh, across from Palestine, so obviously it's close to uh, Jewish people living in Judea and Galilee, and it had a, from ancient times, it had uh, several synagogues there, okay? Great, thank you for doing that. Um, okay, so in gospel ministry, our dependence on Christ shows up how? Now we can say we're dependent on Christ all day long, but how does our dependence on Christ show up when we're engaged in gospel ministry? It shows up in, on one hand with sensitivity to God's spirit. We're not just running off in whatever direction we want to go. We're prayerfully, just like the church in Antioch, we're fasting, we're praying, we're considering God. Here I am. I love that. Those are like my favorite words in scripture, Samuel, so many others. He says, Samuel, here I am. Like, that's what we say. And we say, send us wherever you would. And sometimes that's over the seas, and sometimes that's across the street. Sometimes that's to the bedroom next to ours, you know? Um, So, sensitivity to the Spirit is one way. And another way to show our dependence on Christ when we're engaging gospel ministry is is interdependence with other Christians. Like, like, that's how he provides for us. That's how he protects us. That how, that's how we are held accountable. It's through other Christians. It's through his people. And so when we depend on one another in gospel ministry, ultimately we're depending on Christ. And we need all the sensitivity and all the support we can get because gospel ministry will, will meet opposition from God's enemies. It's not a matter of might. It's not a matter of uh, it could. Be, it, it's possible. Gospel ministry will meet opposition from God's enemies, both physical and spiritual. And we see a clear example of this in verses 6 through 8. So in verses 6, it's, uh, Luke records, When they, that is these three missionaries, had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they found a magician, a Jewish false prophet whose name was Bar-Jesus, who was with the proconsul, that's like the governor of a senatorial district, Uh, Sergius Paulus, his name's Paul, he's got the same name as Paul, a man of intelligence. And this man summoned Barnabas and Saul, he summons them, and sought to hear the word of God. But, and this could be Elimus, or if you do the Greek pronunciation, which I prefer, it's Elumis. Isn't that a great magician name, Elumis, right? Great magician name. So uh, this, this guy Bar-Jesus is also called Illumis, and it says, but Illumis the magician, for, and then we get this little parenthetical, for so his name is translated, was opposing them, was opposing these ministers of the gospel, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. So wherever there are gospel opportunities, there will be gospel opposition. In verses 6 and 7, we are reminded that there will always be people open to the gospel. There's people open to the gospel in this room, people that haven't yet trusted in Christ. There are always people all over the world, in every culture you can imagine, and the gospel penetrates every culture, in every nation, in every linguistic group, in every every way for the last 20 centuries. So there's always going to be people open to the gospel. Are there always going to be people that want to find eternal hope, eternal life, forgiveness of sin? a reconciled relationship with their creator, you better believe it. So yes, there's going to be people open to the gospel. Sergius Paulus, he was an intelligent, well-connected man. 
and probably the most powerful person on the island of Cyprus. And even though he was so powerful and so intelligent and so well-connected, God was drawing him to himself. And so he, he, he summons Paul and Barnabas, Saul and Barnabas, because he wants to hear more about the personal work of Christ. He wants to hear the gospel. He wants to know how the Jewish scriptures pointed forward to this Jewish Messiah that would come and bear the sins of God's people and die for them and raise up again on the third day and all these amazing things that he was being exposed to. And so in verse 8, we are also reminded that there will also always be people opposed to the gospel. Guys, that's true until the end of these days, until the end of the age, there's going to be people that are so... And I don't say this disparagingly because I was one of these people, right, before I trusted Christ. But there's going to be people that are so selfish, prideful, insecure, you name it, whatever it is. There's going to be such a a strong pull towards certain idols, unforgiveness, bitterness, whatever, right? That there will always be people opposed to the good news of Jesus Christ. Bar Jesus, which the, that Jesus is, is the Greek name for Joshua, which is Yeshua, which means like God saves or, or the salvation of God, okay? Salvation of the Lord. So basically this guy's name means son of salvation or son of the Savior, bar Jesus, or just, just frankly bar son of Jesus, okay? That's his name, at least that's one of his names. And his other name, Illumis, which again, that's just a great magician name, uh, that might have come, we don't know really, but it might have come from an Arabic word for wise, so wise, powerful, influential. This guy's obviously a smart character, okay? And he's Jewish, so he knows the Hebrew scriptures, but he's also pluralistic in the sense he's bringing in these sort of magi influences from the East, from Persia, Babylonian astrology, all sorts of things, okay? So on Cyprus, there were all sorts of spiritual influences, like I mentioned, from all over the world. And this Jewish false prophet basically had worked his way into a position of influence with the Roman proconsul, which is like the Roman governor. Um, And he basically was a spiritual con artist. In fact, the words that Paul uses to describe him is basically the deceit and the trickery or the deceit and the wickedness. He's basically calling him a spiritual con artist. That this guy kind of used all his knowledge and, you know, supposed wisdom and all these things uh, to kind of con his way into this relationship with the Romans were very superstitious, so it might have been easy to get in there with the proconsul. So basically, this spiritual con artist, he knew that the good news of Jesus was going to be bad news for his little business, his little thing he had going, okay? And this is the same reason why the Pharisees and the Sadducees murdered Jesus, right? Is because he was destroying their power structures. He was coming and pulling the rug out from under them. They had built up all this power and authority in that culture, and he came and just knocked it down and said, the first will be last, the last will be first. You know, and, and they said, nope, we can't deal with that. Well, same thing here. He's, 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 uh, he's, uh, there's a lot on the line for Bar-Jesus or Loomis, okay? So he actively opposes the truth of Jesus Christ, and he tries to keep the proconsul from hearing and certainly from believing the gospel. But despite his best efforts, the rest of the passage reminds us that gospel ministry will overcome all opposition by God's grace. And look at how this plays out in the, in the uh, verses 9 through 11. It says, but Saul, and now we see him as something else, but Saul, who was also known as Paul, when you take Saul, which was his, his, uh, 
Aramaic or Hebrew name that he would use around Jewish people in synagogues and such. Paul was like his Roman name that he would use in like Greco-Roman society, Gentile society. Um, Paul basically means little. <laughs> Saul, if you take his name and you make it, you Romanize it, it's kind of a lewd thing. So it makes sense that he would have, most people would have two names, especially Jewish people living in a Greco-Roman context. So now we see a shift from Saul right, to Paul, and that's going to stick with it throughout the rest of the book of Acts. He's going to be Paul, okay? So it says, Paul, uh, Saul, who is also known as Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, stared at him, stared at this magician, this false prophet, and said, you who are full of all deceit and fraud, you son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, will you not stop making crooked the straight ways of the Lord? Now behold, the, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and not see the sun for a time. And immediately a mist and a darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking those who would lead him by the hand. So these verses remind us of three things that belong to each and every Christian. Everybody that's put their faith in Jesus Christ and been indwelled by the Holy Spirit has these three things. In verse 9, we're reminded that we have God's Spirit. When you trust in Jesus, you receive all of the Spirit. Not like 30%, and you kind of work your way up to like 90, 95, 100% you get God's Spirit. The Holy Spirit comes and resides in us. He lives in us. Not a part or a piece or a percentage, but the Holy Spirit. He indwells us. Now, does that mean that we're always controlled by or filled by the Spirit? No, obviously not. That's a lifelong process of more and more giving our life over to Him, being sensitive, being submissive, being obedient, and that's sanctification, okay? We're all on that journey in this life as Christians. But we get God's Spirit, and the filling of the Spirit gives us confidence in Christ. Guys, when we lay down ourselves with all that junk, the insecurities and the fears and all the, the idols and all that stuff, then we can actually be confident in Christ. Isn't that beautiful? Because we get ourselves out of the way, and all of a sudden we become vessels, instruments in the hand of the Redeemer, right? And then we can be bold, not in an arrogant way. The beauty of Christianity is that you can be humbly bold, humbly confident, right? Because it's not us, it's Christ in us. It's the work of the Holy Spirit through us, okay? And all of us can have that same exact confidence that Paul has as he confronts this false prophet, Illumis. You ever look at Paul sometimes and go, oh, I wish I could have faith like that. You can have faith like that. You can be confident, just as Paul was, okay? And then in verse 10, we're reminded that we also have God's truth. In fact, the Holy Spirit is the spirit of truth and wisdom. And so we have God's truth in God's word, the written word, in the living word, Jesus Christ. The Spirit brings truth and wisdom into our lives. Um, as Paul put it, we have what he called the straight ways of the Lord. You remember, this was uh, John the Baptist, right? And the Hebrew prophets said this as well. John the Baptist was, was reiterating it. But make straight the way of the Lord. Make straight the way of the Lord. What does that mean? It means prepare people's heart to receive Jesus. And what did he do? He called people to repentance. So call people to repentance turn from your sin, turn towards the Savior, right? That's what, that's what John the Baptist was preparing people for. That's what Jesus was doing. 
Okay, and so you have we have these straight ways of the Lord in Scripture and throughout Christian history, and this guy's making them crooked. But we have the straight ways of the Lord. We have the good news about Jesus Christ. That as John says in 14.6 in his gospel, that he alone is not a way, not a truth, not a source of life. He's the way, the truth, and the life. Guys, I know that's not a popular doctrine these days, the exclusivity of Christ, but it's absolutely fundamental to the Christian faith. And we have the way, the truth, the life, Jesus Christ. And so we have to speak the truth about Jesus and oppose any untruth meant to deceive or to distract from or to dilute God's truth. And there's a lot of it out there, okay? Third, in verse 11, we're reminded that we have God's power. Paul judges the spiritually blind Illumis, who's acting like he's got all this wisdom. In fact, he's probably putting himself forward as a... As a as a, a prognosticator, someone that can tell the future, okay? And so he acts like he has all this, all this insight, all this light, so to speak, uh, insight, wisdom, knowledge of the future. And so, but inside he's, he's dark, he's, he's um, in shadow, he's in untruth, okay? And so basically Paul just makes the inside the outside. The judgment on Illumis is that the darkness that existed in his heart becomes the reality physically for his eyes and for his life, Okay? And so he judges him with the authority of Christ. And his judgment of physical blindness is carried out by the power of Christ. That's why when Christ sends out the disciples in the Great Commission, he says, all authority, both in heaven and on the earth, has been given to me. Therefore, go, right? And I will be with you till the end of this age, okay? So Jesus is with us, and we are acting on his power and his authority, okay? And it's also ironic that what happened to Illumis mirrors what happened to Paul when he first met Jesus on the road to Damascus. So now we've got Paul, who used to think he had a lot of light too. He was persecuting the church, thinking he was doing uh, the, the, the living God of Israel, Yahweh, a favor. He, he thought he was putting to, to rest or putting to death a, a wicked heresy, okay, by killing all these Christians. And then he meets Jesus on the road to Damascus, and he gets struck blind. Oh, you who thought you had so much light, I'm going to strike you blind. And in that place of dependence, remember they had to lead him by the hand into Damascus? Same deal, right? And then he eventually trusts in Christ. But it's, it's very similar to what happens here in his judgment on Illumis. And by God's grace, I want to just please, God is so gracious. He's so gracious and merciful, so much more than we give God credit for, infinitely more so than we can even understand. But by God's grace, it says in the text, the inspired word of God, Illumis would only be blind for a time. And it's almost like Luke, the inspired author, is leaving the door open for this Jewish magician, this false prophet, to ultimately come to faith in Christ, just like Paul had following his own blindness after meeting Jesus Christ. I love that. It's like he leaves the door open. We don't know what happened to this guy. I hope I meet him in heaven one day. I think that would be fantastic. So just to sum up our passage, Paul and Barnabas were intentionally involved in gospel ministry, and they met inevitable spiritual opposition, as we all will, but they overcame that opposition by the authority and power of Jesus Christ their Lord. You know, there are basically two types of spiritual opposition to the Christian faith. And I would categorize them as internal or external, okay? External opposition, we all know what that looks like. If Satan really is who the scriptures claim him to be, 
if he really is the prince of this world, right, if he can really offer the kingdoms of this world to Jesus as a way of, you know, Jesus is going to have the kingdoms of this world in his kingdom, but he offers him a shortcut, a crucifixionless shortcut, but it doesn't contest his authority. So if Satan is that uh, powerful and has that much authority on this earth, in this life, then whole systems of government and economics and institutions and not just individuals, but big things can be under the sway and influence of Satan. Now, that doesn't mean that God's not still sovereign. He certainly is. And God accomplished one of the greatest things ever, well, the greatest thing ever, our redemption and salvation through the activity of Satan, working in Judas and working through the Roman soldiers and working through the Jewish leadership there in Jerusalem. So God is still sovereign, okay? But that doesn't exclude the reality that Satan is operative, okay? So we see that external opposition, and it, it basically, it's an outright denial of the Christian faith, but coming from a lot of different directions, um, but it's the internal opposition that I want to focus on here. Internal opposition is usually much more subtle. What do I mean by internal opposition to the gospel? Internal opposition comes from within the church itself, okay? And, and it represents the false teachings of what amounts to false churches and false Christian leaders, what Paul and Peter and others call wolves in, sheep clo- in sheep's clothing, okay? They come up from among yourselves, right? Like, this is a reality. It's internal opposition to the gospel and to God's truth. And the church has always had false teachers and false prophets. That's not new today, okay? That's been going on since the very beginning, which is why we hear so much about that, which is why we see so many warnings in the New Testament about false teachers and false prophets, Okay? Um, That was a basic and is a basic reality of the church. But ever since the Enlightenment, back in the 18th, early 19th centuries, and really coming to full bloom in the 19th centuries, in the 1800s, ever since then, we've seen many Christian churches and even whole Christian denominations wholeheartedly adopting false teachings, false doctrines that essentially deny the Christian faith outright. Again, This is not a popular thing to talk about. And and if I ruffle your feathers, I will happily sit down with you. Please call me. Please don't walk away angry saying, well, you know, I grew up and they said this and I, you know, great, let's talk about it, okay? Deal? All right. But, But here's what I mean by denying the Christian faith. They deny God's holiness, that God is set apart from creation, that he's holy. Ultimate holiness, righteousness, they, they uh, take away the, the, um, the separation, like I said, between creator and creation. And then these Eastern influences, the spiritual pluralism sort of merges God with the world and the universe and such. Pantheism and panentheism and all this stuff. Uh, they, they emphasize or they don't emphasize God's created order. They deny that, that there is a created order of God as set out in Scripture and particularly in the first two chapters before the fall. They would deny that there's a created order, including God's design for marriage and family, gender and sexuality. You guys know these are hot topics right now. They would deny that there's any such created order at all, and it just doesn't matter, none of it, okay? They deny the virgin birth of Jesus, Mother's Day, right? God chose the loving, comforting care of a mother, the protective nature of a mother to bring the light of the world into this world through the incarnation of Jesus Christ to the Virgin Mary. And they outright deny the virgin birth. They they deny that Jesus died for our sins. 
that they deny his glorious resurrection. They deny the reality of sin and Satan and future judgment of sin and eternal condemnation, hell. Those are all things denied by churches and denominations today. Uh, they deny the inspiration and authority of God's word. That's at the base of it all. It's just if you can get rid of God's word, if you can toss this or allegorize it or do whatever to it, do a bunch of mental gymnastics to get around what it says, then you can come up with anything. And a lot of churches and denominations have done that. And like the Jewish false prophet in our passage, these churches and these church leaders are, quote, making crooked the straight ways of the Lord. There are straight ways of the Lord laid out in Scripture that are really straightforward. Like, there's not debate. There hasn't been debate on these things for, like, 20 centuries. And then we get now to postmodernism and a post-Christian West, and all of a sudden everything's up for grabs, Okay. As followers of Christ, we cannot tolerate the intentional misrepresentation of God's word, of Christ, of Christianity. We cannot tolerate that. I'm not saying you hate people. I'm not saying you're mean to people. But we have to be straightforward and direct about defending God's word against misrepresentation. Defending the true gospel against false gospels. Okay? And by God's grace, our gospel ministry will overcome any such internal opposition from the false teachers of our day. But we must be prepared, as Paul and Barnabas were, and that means we must recognize our dependence on the Lord. We cannot do this by ourselves. We must be sensitive to the Holy Spirit, and we must depend upon the support of other Christians. That's why he puts us in churches, folks. That's why we're in the body of Christ, grafted in as fellow members one of another is because we need each other's support. As we intentionally engage in gospel ministry, whether it's at work, whether it's in our neighborhood, or on an airplane, or wherever it is, we need to pray that the Holy Spirit would speak through us, and we need to ask others to pray for us, and the people that God is giving us the privilege of sharing the the gospel of hope in Jesus Christ with. And for those uh, people praying for us, we need to be praying for them as well. And I hope that Wayside is known all around by everyone who knows us as a church that prays together, prays for one another, prays for opportunities to share the gospel, and prays for the amazing, beautiful, wonderful people that have yet to trust in Christ that God's placed in our life, because we all have those people, okay? Um, And on that note, I want to close with the final verse of today's passage, verse 12. It says, Then the proconsul believed when he saw what happened, being amazed at the teaching of the Lord or the teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, Next week, we're going to see Paul taking the lead, even as he loses one of those key members of his apostolic missionary band. And we'll, we'll look at that next week.